Hello, and welcome to Square in the Circle. On this episode, we are discussing PPBE in the budget, and I'm joined by Ms. Elaine McCusker. Ms. McCusker is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, focusing on defense strategy, budget, and innovation. Before joining the American Enterprise Institute, Ms. McCusker served as deputy and then acting undersecretary of defense comptroller. Her earlier Department of Defense positions included U.S. Central Command, the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller, and the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development, and Acquisition. She also served on the Hill as a Professional Senate Armed Services Committee staff member. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program are of my own and of my guests. They do not reflect the positions of the U.S. Government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or any other organization. This content is for education and information purposes only. Okay, ma'am. Well, I just wanted to say, you know, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate your time, especially during the busy times with the, the holidays and, and for you to uh, be a part of this podcast and to talk about a, a topic that I think is, is very fascinating and uh, very important to talk about. And that is PPBE as, as, well, as, the, as well as the budget. And uh, for, my, for my listeners, for the force managers and the, and the so what behind it of why, why we're talking about PPBE in in the budget um, is, is because as force managers we are we are heavily involved in that especially in the in the planning phase where we're designing the force uh, building the force and also in the in the programming as, as well as we determine you know re- requirements um, but throughout PPBE in the budget we have to be you know heavily aware of where we're at in the in the current phase you know where, what year are we for programming? You know, where are we at for budgeting? Um, where is it at in, in Congress? And ultimately, when the when the president signs. Um, that being said, ma'am, I, I filibustered a little too long. I'll turn it over to you for any opening comments. No, thanks for doing this. I think it's a great topic and it's very timely. Unfortunately, it's also a bit timeless in the kind of challenges that we deal with. And I think the more that the programming, force management, and budgeted budgeting communities understand each other and their associated process, the better for the mission, the warfighter, and the taxpayer. I think there's plenty of room for improvement all around. So also some great opportunities for creativity and and building solid relationships, which, you know, as you and all your listeners know, are so key to everything we do. So I really look forward to the discussion and the questions you have. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, ma'am. Me, me as well. Um, so I'll just dive right in. And, you know, the first question I have is, you know, the budget, it's, it's, it's no secret. The budget is, you know, approaching uh, $900 billion, close to, you know, to a trillion. Um, there's, there's factions. There's, there's folks out there that think that the Department of Defense budget is just way too ridiculously big. I was just wondering, what are your, what are your comments on that, ma'am? So, I think this is a great way to start the conversation because it really gets to some fundamental topics. Um, First, budget should be built to support the strategy and the mission tasks and objectives that are required to carry out that strategy. And for those who are uncomfortable with the size of a defense budget, I have one main point and two questions for consideration. The first main point has two parts. So part one, are inalienable rights expressed by the Declaration of Independence are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The first one is life. If we are not safe, secure, and free, nothing else matters. Part two, under our Constitution, national defense is the only mandatory and exclusive job of the federal government. Yet at 12% of federal outlays, it's still and, and is still at a near historic low of GDP, it's not the driver of the deficit, 
and it's not as much as people think. And it's not always spent on core defense missions. So that's kind of the, I think, the fundamental point to sort of lay the stage for looking at the size of the budget. The second part I want to get to is two questions for consideration for people who are thinking that the budget is too big. Um, First, do they understand what's really in the budget, how it is built, and what it supports, and really what is necessary for a defense force to meet the strategy the nation has laid out for it? And second, do they know sort of the broad range of missions we are asking our military to do, Um, particularly those that are outside its core function? And I think this notion of core function is really crucial. To me, it means the things that DOD is expected to do and that only it can do, such as building a Navy, an Army, an Air Force, a Space Force, um, cyber proficiency capable of competing with China, Um, sustaining and modernizing air, maritime, ground, and special operations forces um, with power projection that they need, and, of course, maintaining America's nuclear capabilities. Mm -hmm. So instead, we have expanding definitions of national security that lead to mission creep in what we're asking our military to do. And all this costs money, um, money that is in that large defense budget number that people look at. And so as the definition of national security continues to expand and the trend of adding non-core missions and, of course, the programs and activities and, you know, all that that go with them to the defense budget is likely to grow, you combine that with increasing healthcare costs, benefits, compensation. Um, The true cost of military capability, I think, is disguised and in some ways even squeezed out by these other priorities. So I think it's important that people understand how much of the defense budget goes to programs and activities that actually produce military capability. And in fact, I think the true defense requirements, the budget for those is too low. Um, And so, you know, when you're looking at just sort of the number and getting what you maybe you're getting a little sticker shock, I think you kind of have to put all that in context and understand all of those factors before you just sort of decide for yourself, well, you know, I'm uncomfortable with a budget that that big. You need to really understand it a little bit better. And so I'll stop there. Okay. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. And I think also in, in, in fairness, I mean, this is, this is no secret as well. You know, we also have inflation, like things are, are costing more. So, I mean, I think that's, that's also a consideration as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely true. And it was actually, of course, a big deal over the last couple of years when, you know, um, the budget request in uh, 23 and 24, I mean, didn't really account for the kind of inflation we were seeing. And so, mm-hmm. you know, with with the cost going up that much, uh, you know, some of what would have been a potential increase in the defense budget was just completely eaten and then some by that inflation that you mentioned. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Yep. Yes, ma'am. Um, let's just move along. We just want to talk about CRs. All right. Um, so, you know, we're, we're on a CR 2.0, um, maybe having a, an annual CR. I mean, that's, that's been in the talks. Um, you know, why is, why is a CR not a good thing? Why is it a bad thing? Why, you know, why is it, you know, a, a, uh, like a detriment, right? What, what are the implications of, of having a continuing resolution? So this is a subject I have probably spent more time on than any other in the last several years. And indeed, actually, when I was still in the department too, Uh, There are so many disruptive, destructive, and wasteful elements to governing by CR. Um, And as you mentioned, you know, kind of 2.0, and let's face it, we've had continuing resolutions for all but three of like the last 47 years. 
Um, and yeah, DOD has never been under a year long CR. And so um, this is this is a really big deal. And I think you hear often the phrase, you know, time is money, which I think is very descriptive here. But I also heard it put another way which recently, which is speed is life, um, which hit me as also appropriate for this discussion. So for example, right now, DOD is losing about $219 million a day in buying power alone, a number that will go up next year in January if the cuts that will be imposed by the Fiscal Responsibility Act are not repealed. And we can talk more about those. And I think, you know, what we've seen is in the past, DOD leadership has actually been a little bit hesitant to sound the alarm too loudly on continuing resolution, but it has done that more and more um, to include a couple of hearings um, on the subject over the last 18 months. And just last week, um, DOD leadership sent six separate letters to the Hill expressing their concern about the potential impacts of a year-long CR. And I'll just, um, if you bear with me, I'll quote from one of them, um, because a lot of your listeners are probably Army. Um, it's the letter from Christine Warmoth, who summarized mm. the impacts of a potential year-long CR. Um, and it was a letter um, dated just December 12th, so you know, pretty recently. And she said that the significant consequences for our recruiting efforts, acquisition portfolio, and military construction program would diminish the Army's ability to achieve its mission in support of the national defense strategy, including by taking care of our people. And pulling just one specific example of the many that she said, the Army would have to delay fielding of the mid-range capability to the first unit equipped, as well as postpone a funding increase needed mm -hmm. to purchase five lower tier air and missile defense sensors, um, which is a critical new sensor for the integrated air and missile defense system. So in short, um, you know, from my perspective, and there, you know, there's a lot out there on this now, the impacts of CRs are immediate, they're cumulative, and they're unrecoverable. And I think you can bend them in three main categories. And I can go briefly into those categories if you'd like, or I can just stop there. No, yes, ma'am, please. Okay, so first category is competitiveness. Lost time as a department delays contracts. It can't do new starts. It can't do production increases. It also incrementally funds things. And this is for any financial managers who are out there listening as well. Um, you know, you know, as financial managers, I mean, you got to make sure that the money you have lasts and that you're sort of going to be incrementally funding things, which basically cost more money. So, you know, the prices that we're getting are higher. Um, it also generally, you know, sort of sends a signal of uncertainty. Um, and I think the other thing that, I, you know, I've oft, often heard this from the media, they say, well, you know, so long as the department finally, you know, eventually gets an appropriation, you know, it, everything's okay. It's absolutely not okay. You can't buy back time. Um, this impacts proposed investments in industrial based capacity, new research efforts, um, improved and expanded capabilities in the Pacific and procurement increases for munitions and missiles, which of course is also particularly of interest to the army right now. And also to the nation as a whole, as we see, um, you know, not only our industrial capacity not being where it should, but we're also, you know, helping our friends and ally allies in two fighting wars now um, who need these munitions. And so that's mm -hmm. the first bin. Um, the second bin is buying power, which I kind of already mentioned, you know, minimum of $219 million last per day. Last per day. And that does not include supplemental requirements, right? So that's just, um, you know, actually it does kind of include some supplemental requirements, but not for um, the new um, operations in the Middle East. Um, and then the third thing is really about transparency. And what we have seen is often the resolution of appropriation comes in the form of like some huge omnibus bill enacted sort of months after the fiscal year starts. 
It sometimes includes bills that never went through committee or even, you know, to the House and Senate floor. And so, um, I mean, I think that is another aspect of this that is important as a taxpayer um, to understand as well. And so, I mean, to put it bluntly, you know, negative impacts are felt by every community, business, and partner that engages with or supports the Department of Defense. So from the company that cuts the grass on the military base to the small business that provides childcare or food, um, the uncertainty of um, HRs, you know, hits all of those communities and, and it tends to hit those um, who can least afford it the hardest. And so you can't, I don't think you can really overstate how bad it is to govern by CR. Yeah, yeah. Yes, ma'am. No, I, I appreciate you breaking down into those, those bins. That's, you know, that's really great. I think at like the, at the, at the micro level, at least, you know, for, for me, right. Like a, a CR, it's, it's just hard to, you know, to expand if you want to do, you know, additional hiring actions, things like that as well. You know, it's, 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 it's really hard. And here we are trying to transform and modernize, you know, in our services and other services as well. Um, and it's hard to do that if you don't have the buying power behind it. And I think also, you know, it, it sends a signal to our adversaries. You know, our adversaries are continuously watching us, right? Um, that you know, you know, if there's dysfunction in the government and we can't get a budget across the finish line, you know, it, it sends a message to, to them that you know we're, you know, maybe we're not taking taking things as, as seriously as we should. Yeah, I mean, it it does. I mean, it feeds it feeds directly into their talking points, right? I mean, if the United States is, you know. Um, disjointed and disorganized and dysfunctional and, you know, all those things, it, it feeds directly into the talking points from Russia and China that, you know, we're unreliable, that um, democracy doesn't work and, you know, the United States can't get its act together. And I mean, it, it's, you know, exactly um, the best thing for our adversaries. They're the only ones who actually do benefit from um, this kind of a situation year after year. Yeah, yeah, yes, ma'am. Um, but I do want to touch base on the, the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Um, so I, I remember sequestration 1.0. I hope we don't go to a 2.0, but but maybe. Um, and it it was painful. So, you know, my question is, you know, do you assess or, or foresee a, another sequestration like, you know, in the near future? I mean, I think this is a real threat and um, fear under the FRA provisions. And you know, initially, I mean, you can kind of see the good intentions of what was done in the FRA, uh, you know, sort of calling attention to some of those things we just talked about, about, you know, the need for kind of regular order. You know, we want to have all 12 appropriations bills passed on time and separately. And, you know, there was, I think, goodness coming out of Congress to recognize that. But they put the penalty for failure exactly in the wrong place. I mean, for me, this is, you know, the you know, sort of very much the shoot the hostage approach um, where, yeah, we didn't get our job done. So now you are going to suffer a 1% across the board cut and you're going to take this cut in a five month period. Again, like you said, most of us were, a lot of us were, remember the sequestration and, and the way that happened. And honestly, we are probably still recovering readiness and modernization from that time period. And so I think, I mean, I think there's a very real threat on this. And I think that since this provision was actually put into the FRA as a way to kind of like incentivize that behavior and it didn't work, it needs to be repealed. And I think there's plenty of interesting debate um, in Congress now on even how to interpret what the words on the page mean. 
which I think is a good thing because I, it means that you know there are those in Congress who realize that they probably need to do something about this before it happens. Unfortunately, um, the department kind of has to plan for this now. I mean, you, you can, they can't wait until May first to say, "Oh, we're going to take you know this huge cut." And by the way, if you factor in, like we talked about before, um, you know, inflation and the pay raise and fact of life costs, the effective cut is actually fifty billion that the department would have to absorb in just five months. And again, this doesn't include supplementals. So I think, I mean, I think it's a real concern uh, as we head into January and we see how um, Congress is going to, you know, take that first um, CR deadline of uh, January 19th and how they're going to deal with that. And of course, you know, let's remember that um, the veterans appropriations bill is in that January 19th deadline. Mm -hmm. And so we, I think we really all need to um, make our, our voices known on what the impacts could be if, um, you know, this type of thing happens. And like you said, I mean, a lot of us remember, <laughs> remember it. I mean, it's like, you know, okay, I get you were well-intentioned on trying to incentivize yourself, but it didn't work. And so, you know, let's not, you know, kind of bring down our national security as a result. Over. Yeah, yes, ma'am. Yeah, I, I remember it just like yesterday, you know, I was, it was, you know, I was a brand new, uh, you know, second lieutenant platoon leader, um, and there was readiness impacts, right? So, mm -hmm. um, okay, ma'am, so I want to touch base on the unfunded priority lists and try to get your thoughts on, on, on that. Um, so no Secretary of Defense likes that. Um, this 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 process this procedure. Um, do you think it like hinders any civ mill relationships between like the executive branch and, and DoD or, you know, I know these are mandated notifications to Congress of you know unfunded requirements you know for this for the services and the combatant commands. Do you think it's a it's a good process or or, or not, ma'am? Your thoughts? So I mean, this is interesting because you won't find many topics in which I don't have pretty certain thoughts, but I can actually see both sides of this. And I think the reason for that is because I use them as a congressional staffer myself. Um, I appreciated them as a resource director at a COCOM. And then I found them to be pretty challenging and annoying, and annoying when I was in OSD. But like you said, they're required by Congress. So I'd like to go into a couple thoughts on that more specifically. And so setting aside the quality of the list, I think it's worth examining two questions. Question number one, should Congress require senior uniform personnel to directly convey their best military judgment on risk in the defense budget through submission of these unfunded priorities? And second, should it require such lists only from defense leaders? And to answer these questions, I think there's two fundamental points to consider. First, do congressional responsibilities to authorize and appropriate funds benefit from, and in fact require, advice directly from senior military leaders? And second, is the DOD like every other federal department? I think the answer to the first question is clearly yes. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as we just talked about, I mean, given the immense size and complexity of the federal government, Congress needs as much insight and advice and access to quality program information as possible to make wise decisions. I mean, this is our money, right? We're, we're mm -hmm. as taxpayers. We expect them to spend this money wisely on our national priorities. And I think, you know, you combine that with every senior military officer agrees as part of their confirmation hearing to provide their best military advice, even if it doesn't agree with the president. Um, so that's question number one. Question number two, um, I think the answer is also yes. Uh, as I mentioned before, defense is the federal government's only mandatory and exclusive job. And I think people need to keep that in mind. Um, so it should not be a priority. It should be the priority. 
And so DOD is not like every other federal department. And I think conveying the risk inherent in a proposed budget should include those closest to it and not just those political appointees charged with defending the president's budget. And so I think when you think those, consider those two things, you can see why um, Congress requires these lists. I also think that it would be useful if the lists were um, provided to OSD when they're sent to the Hill. And by the way, a lot of times when I was in OSD where I got the unfunded priority list was from the Hill. And so not only do you, you know, does the enterprise not get a look, you know, a chance to influence them, which I think is the intent, they don't get a chance to see them, which I think is maybe a little bit overboard. Um, the second thing is Congress has now started to require OSD offices to submit, submit UPLs, which I don't think is appropriate uh, because then you're having essentially a political appointee, a Senate confirmed political appointee submitting an unfunded priority list on their own, their own budget. Um, so I think that maybe takes it a little bit too far, but um, basically, I mean, I, I see the utility. I mean, you know, Congress needs as much advice as possible on this and, and um, you know, military commanders have that duty to provide their best advice. And I think Congress needs to, you know, when they get them, they need to know this is not the enterprise wide view. And um, second, it should be, you know, when they're getting these lists, they should be the lowest priority within the service, right? So if there's, if something was a service's highest priority, it would be in the budget. Um, and, you know, so these are, you know, kind of the lower tier things and that, that should be part of the evaluation too. So anyway, those are my thoughts. Oh, yes, ma'am. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I, I want to touch base on combatant commands and, and how they're funded. I understand, you know, your background, you were the you know, resource director at, at CENTCOM, which is, you know, my higher headquarters. I was just wondering if you could talk us through how are combatant commands funded? Is it through the services or what, what does that look like? Because it's not, it's not clear for, for some, ma'am. Yeah, so each COCOM is funded, is funded through their service support agents. So um, everyone's assigned a service to handle their budget requests and their fund flow. For example, um, you know, U.S. Central Command is an Air Force COCOM. Indo-PACOM is a Navy COCOM. You know, they all have their, their services that um, manage their funding and their budget. In addition to the funds flow that goes from the service to the COCOM headquarter, they're also funded through their component commands like RCENT, which of course you're gonna know better than anyone how that works. Um, yeah. The only exception is SOCOM is a bit different um, because they have acquisition authority, but they are also still considered an Air Force COCOM from a um, you know, sort of from a funds flow and management perspective. So that's kind of basically how it works. Uh, okay, yeah, yes ma'am, you know, that, that actually clears, clears things up. I really appreciate it. Um, I wanted to get your take on the audits, the, the Pentagon, making progress, but failing the audits, I think for like the sixth time. Um, do you think this is a long road ahead for achievement? Is this something that's that's possible or, or not given the size of the bureaucracy and the amount of funding? I just wonder what your thoughts are on this, ma'am. So as you can imagine, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, and I'll talk about just a few main points. And I will answer your question as well. So while the full financial statement audit is required by law, and so obtaining a clinical opinion would be, I think, useful and good. That eventual passing grade is actually secondary to the kind of progress driven by the audit. So I think the real value of the audit comes from lasting improvements that are being made to business systems, to cybersecurity, to inventory and personnel management, and to data analytics. And so it, with that in mind, I think there's five key progress measures to consider and understanding why that audit journey matters 
regardless of when the overall passing grade is achieved. And I can go through each one of those real quick if that would be useful. Yeah, yes, ma'am, please. Okay, so the first is culture. Um, the audit drives the entire department, not just the financial management com community, to focus on things like accuracy and accountability and record keeping in their daily missions and jobs, and even in their performance measures. And I think that um, integrity and in financial reporting is the business of every uniformed and civilian leader and employee. And people need to understand that. And that goes for everyone who's listening as well. I mean, you know, you may think that, well, you know, I'm in force management or, you know, I'm a program manager and, and that it doesn't matter to me. It absolutely matters to you because if we don't have accurate information in our business systems, you're not getting what you need to do your, to, to make good decisions and to make good recommendations to your boss. So it absolutely matters to you. Um, the second is uh, progress in harnessing the power of data. And this is kind of related to the first, but so if the digital battlefield is the center of, you know, sort of capability and advantages in future warfare, then accurate, timely, reliable data from all defense systems is critical to our defense. Um, we need, you know, um, sort of that, that financial single source of truth um, and the need for that drove the department to create something called the Advancing Analytics System, or ADVANA. And this system now includes cyber readiness, logistics, contracting, personnel, and budget execution data. And it also provides user-friendly tools to answer management and oversight questions on performance across all systems. And so I think that is an important outcome of um, this audit journey that, you know, will support that eventual clean opinion. But it was really that kind of fundamental change that is more important. Um, then I think um, readiness of the force and cybersecurity are the third and fourth measures of progress. Audit findings in these areas of you know, sort of inventory and information technology has, you know, really enhanced situational awareness efforts across cybersecurity and parts and supplies um, in order to improve readiness and actually save money. And so, you know, the audit, sort of the, the auditors, when they go through and they look at these things, they kind of provide a reassurance that, um, you know, sort of how we're doing in, in sort of testing both of these operational areas. And finally, I think the audit provides sort of general support for stewardship and cost effectiveness. So, um, you know, all those efforts I just described produce cost savings. Um, you know, they do things like, you know, the department can, if it understands its inventory better, and does sort of, you know, book to floor, floor to book match, it won't be ordering parts it already has. And it better, it will be able, you know, so like I mentioned the cyber thing, it'll better protect its systems and data um, from cyber, cyber vulnerabilities. And so I think um, to answer your direct question, I think achieving the clean audit opinion is possible. I think the department will get there, but I think that institutional changes are the key value. And we don't want to incentivize just getting the clean opinion over making those changes which is one of the reasons why when I've talked to the Hill, I've said, you know, um, let's be careful on, you know, incentivizing the wrong behavior. Like, you know, one of the ideas they had was, well, let's penalize different organizations that, um, you know, don't achieve a clean audit by a certain date. I'm like, okay, then they're going to drop everything they're doing and devote all their time to getting that clean opinion, even if the changes they're making are not sustainable. And so I think when you look at the audit, the fact that, you know, they don't have a clean opinion after six years is not, number one, surprising to me. And it's not even, I don't think, the most important thing. Um, the important thing is kind of the measures I just described. 
Wow. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. This is that's a great breakdown, a really great laydown, and I, I really appreciate that. Uh, just a just a follow up. I'm just you know curious, um, you know, because you know we see the you know the headlines right, like Defense News, you know, like Pentagon failed audit, you know, for the sixth time, something like that. Um, but not knowing, you know, or, you know, maybe not you know listening to this podcast right and getting an understanding of you know how how you how you laid it down for for the listeners, ma'am. Um, do you think it, you know, hinders trust, you know, between Congress and the, and the Pentagon or even like the taxpayers, right? Because they just see like the headline and, and the article can be, you know, not, not you know, not as detailed as, as, as it could be. I do. I mean, I think there's two things that kind of um, hurt the department on this. Uh, the first one is kind of what you just summarized, which is this is not easy to understand and the department is not good at explaining it. And, you know, doing that explanation was my job for like the first three years of the audit. And I got to tell you, um, you know, it's that difference between, uh, you know, reading something that you, know, the, let's say the army, um, sends to me about their audit progress and talking to the person who wrote it because they're just not good at explaining it on paper. Whereas when you talk to them, you're like, Oh, okay, now I get it. Um, and you kind of get those vignettes that make you understand sort of what's really happening here and why it matters. Um, and so I think, you know, the department doesn't do a good job of um, really explaining it in sort of like digestible terms to the layperson, which means that the reporting on it is also not good because you really have to give reporters, you know, something that they can understand and, and explain back. And a lot of what I have done both in that previous job and also now is translate, you know, um, I mean, I still get, you know, pretty knowledgeable reporters ask me like, what did the department mean when they said this? And, you know, when I asked this question and I got the answer back, I was like, I didn't understand it. And so that's one part. The other part is I think that, uh, you know, just based on the politics that some members of Congress will willfully give the wrong impression. Like for instance, there is a particular member of Congress who I really would love to name right now, but I won't, who um, was an appropriator, um, knows better, but almost invariably during uh, markup hearings on appropriations would say, well, the department can't pa pass an audit. So it has no idea where its money's going. And you're like, how can you, how can you with this straight? I mean, you know, you can look out your window and know where the money's going. I mean, it's going to planes and, and, and vehicles and satellites and space capability. I mean, and so, you know, just saying things that are like irresponsible like that and intentionally misleading, I think is also a problem. Um, and so I think there's, you know, there's responsibility on both sides of the equation. And let's face it, I mean, this is kind of a geeky topic. And so I think, you know, you do have to make that translation. And actually, just to take another second on, on this topic, one of the things that um, I did several months ago is, try to explain the audit in terms of the two types of accounting um, and how you manage your checkbook and sort of how that how these types of accounting relate and what the audit is measuring versus what the kind of information you're using for managing your finances. And so that's the kind of thing I think we need more of. And believe me, you know, I, I had to jump through sort of a lot of hoops to make sure that by simplifying it, it was also still accurate. Um, and so I think it, this is complicated, but I think it's worth the effort because it's an important subject. Yeah, yes, ma'am. Yeah, complicated. Um, moving on to like another, you know, complicated, but I think also fascinating is the PPBE um, system. 
uh, the process. And I, I think, you know, out of the whole acquisition system, me personally, I think it's the most fascinating. And so my first question is, you know, your thoughts on, you know, it's it's been existent since, you know, the the, the 60s, you know, the Kennedy administration under uh, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. You know, what does it do for the DOD? Why is it still in existence, especially, you know, out of all the, you know, the, the wrongs and the criticisms and everything? Yeah. Your thoughts on PPB, man. So, I mean, I think it was designed as the solution to disjointed budgeting and kind of a lack of a strategic lens in the budget um, back in that time period. And, you know, you can look at the Congressional Research Service or other places to get sort of the real definition of, you know, what it was, which is that strategic planning process for allocating resources and the framework for um, decision making and you know, kind of connecting budget to strategy um, in, the, in the defense part of the president's budget. So there's a lot of history on this, and most of it may be not, you know, as valuable to go into right now, but um, there's a lot of good resource, resources if listeners want to read up on it. And, you know, obviously you know what these are, but I think the key point is that it does not really reflect the way or time in which we need to operate now. And so, you know, it, it served a purpose. Um, and I think, you know, you definitely want to have that strategic lens on your budget. Uh, but it doesn't actually function the way we do things now. So, you know, it kind of treats everything as if it were an aircraft carrier. Uh, <laughs> and honestly, we shouldn't even treat aircraft carriers like we used to treat aircraft carriers. So I think that's that's part of the issue. And I think, um, you know, you know, if you look at sort of what's wrong with it, um, in the briefest, briefest terms, it's slow and inflexible. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the definition I use is, um, you know, the defense budget is not structured to answer today's important management and oversight questions or to meet the requirements at a speed of relevance for a modern ready force. And so it doesn't easily tell us what we're spending on military capability and it doesn't kind of an, enable us to quickly produce and field the force we require. Um, and so, I mean, the budget should be, you know, transparent, responsive, and supportive of management and oversight. I mean, it should be flexible and agile and quickly adapt to taking advantage of technology advances. And right now, it kind of struggles to do any of that. Do you think, just to follow up, ma'am, do you think it's it's too slow for the modern times? And I mean, like specifically for, you know, the rise of China, you know, our, our, our pacing threat, you know, as our, our adversaries are just, just have an advantage, you know, they they have more speed and we're just a little bit slower with a with a system design in the, in the 60s for that time? I do. I mean, I think, you know, um, there, you know, there's still some, and I can't believe I'm saying this out loud, but there's still some goodness, I think, in um, the process and benefits um, you know, particularly if you're doing some huge decades long platform development or whatever. Although, you know, one of the things I think the system was designed to do is to um, kind of give you sort of that fully burdened look at what your decisions on programs were going to be. And I still think I mean, we don't really have that for sustainment. We kind of it, it's it's still difficult to kind of look in the budget and be like, OK, what's my fully burdened cost? Um, I think, though, it does have some benefit also in kind of the internal governance structure for how the department reviews programs and makes decisions. And um, one of the places, look, actually, if you want to understand better, like the goodness of it, is there's a piece called um, Financing the Fight by former DOD Comptroller Bob Hale, 
Um, and he wrote this in 2021 before he was appointed to and became the chairman of the PPBE commission. But there's some good information in there on kind of like what the goodness of it is. But when you look at our entire system in general, um, our adversaries don't have to operate under continuing resolutions. Mm-hmm. They don't have to submit reprogramming requests when something changes. You know, they're not sort of bound to, um, you know, acquisition decisions and spend plans and, um, you know, programs of record that no longer meet their needs um, and, you know, are tough to get out of. I mean, I'll tell you that some of the, you know, our, a big part of our budget is consumed by decisions that were previously made. Um, and so I think that puts us at a dis- disadvantage when it comes to the type of agility and creativity that we need. Yeah, yes, ma'am. Okay, uh, just we touched up on a little bit, but I think I was wondering if you can give me a little bit more. Where do you see, you know, PPBE succeeding? Where, you know, I know there's a commission out there that's looking at changes for it, um, and a lot of the writings, publications are on the on the criticisms of PPBE. But what, you know, what what would be like the number one thing you think, you know, PPBE is a is a go for? Or you see it successful? You know, what I think we want to maintain from it is really uh, the part of it that nobody really sees. Um, and that's just sort of the way the budgets are presented to leadership and looked at across the enterprise and kind of that internal government structure I mentioned. Um, and I'll quote something from, you know, um, again, Bob Hale and his Financing the Fight, where, you know, he's the one, I think, who does the best job of explaining the goodness of the PPBE where the rest of us like like me would i mean honestly really like to chuck the whole thing and um build something that meets more of an outcomes oriented approach that we need today but um you know one of the things that he said is that the system examines initiatives in broad categories which helps identify duplication and it identifies costs of initiatives it measures benefits against broad guidance it compares costs and benefits systemically over multiple years, and it ensures that voices that are germane to the budget process have a chance to be heard. And I don't disagree with any of that. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that those sort of residual benefits aren't enough to keep the system <laughs> the way it is. I mean, I still, I'm still in favor of like, kind of like flipping this whole thing on its ear. And that includes, I mean, um, you know, I mean, this will like spook the herd a little bit, but I mean, that includes potentially doing away with programs of record. It includes dealing away with um, colors of money and life of funds and sort of a lot of the artificial barriers that have developed to go with PPBE that now inhibit us from acting the way we need to and in the time we need to. Yeah, yes, I mean, well, that's fascinating. I mean, we would have to like relearn a whole new system. Yeah. It'd be painful. For, for it stuff. would. It would take time, right? Yeah. I mean, but you got to start somewhere. Yeah. No. Absolutely, yes, ma'am. Uh, okay. I wanted to circle back to the the topic of of, of trust a, a little bit, tie that into PPBE, and I was just wondering, ma'am, your your thoughts are, you know, should you know Congress give DoD a little bit more flexibility when it comes to like starting programs, or you know, do you think uh, you know Congress, you know, DoD should give Congress, you know, more access to you know within the the PPBE system, like in real time? I uh, just wondering what what your thoughts are between between Congress and, and DOD? Yeah. So yes and yes. <laughs> and I mean, I think those two thoughts are related because I think that uh, you have, you can't really have one without the other. So yes, I think that um, Congress should be 
comfortable in giving DOD some more flexibility. And obviously I kind of just touched a couple of third rails a minute ago when I talked about color of money and life of funds mm-hmm. um, and flexibility to start programs and, you know, sort of the way that um, they provide guidance and oversight should be more on capabilities rather than numbers of platforms and that they should be grading um, the department and its program managers on outcomes rather than inputs. Um, and so I think a lot of that more has to happen, but I also think it's directly related to the department's ability to provide Congress with more real-time user-friendly insight into what is going on with program execution. And I think we're kind of at a um, converging point right now where both of those things should be possible. And when you have things like Advana, um, one of the um, things that they're working on is a way to um, make the budget justification books more electronic and searchable and dynamic and um, ways in which you can give, uh, you know, congressional staff more sort of real-time insight in how program execution is going. Now, of course, you'd have to have... um, you know, some trust on both sides here. So you wouldn't want to get in a situation where that access would mean that Congress would start running the programs from the Hill, right? I mean, it would have to be um, kind of a a little bit of discipline and trial and error on both sides. But I think that um, there should be more flexibility and trust. And I think that that has to be accompanied by giving access and, and the kind of information that Congress needs to do its oversight job. And, you know, it has a lot of um, very expert um, you know, staff on the Hill that I think, you know, could be good partners in doing that. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I wanted to uh, touch base on, on your thoughts on the, on the Valley of Death. This is something that I really want to, you know, dig into, you know, for my listeners to be able to, to learn and, and why it's a problem. Um, so I was just wondering if you could just talk Talk to me about, you know, what is the value of death and, and if you have any thoughts on like, how do we overcome it, ma'am? Yeah, I mean, the value of death is essentially where programs and capabilities go to die in between the time of initial research and discovery and solution than an actual production and implementation. Uh, and I actually was looking at something just recently because I do some work on the value of death because it's directly related to all these other things. Um, and I came across the Army Acquisition Support Center um, definition of it. And essentially, you know, they said that it's a case where a program was abandoned for at least one of four primary reasons. And those reasons were financial, technical, doctrinal, or organizational culture. And so, um, you know, I think, you know, the, the problem statement is relatively well understood. And there's also been a lot of those who've done postmortems on decades of important attempts to solve it. Um, but, you know, from my perspective, I characterize it kind of like I've talked about before in outcomes, which also underpins my thoughts on how to solve it. Um, and so first, I mean, our goal should not be really to buy platforms or even to quickly integrate new solutions. It should be to buy outcomes. So capability for deterrence, for prevention of war and for victory in war. I mean, that should be what we're buying. And I think that's different from how we approach things now which is really focused on very specific requirements, platforms, spend plans, and acquisition strategies, and really sticking to those plans and strategies. And second, I think that um, since, since the future force will be defined more by its software than its hardware, as it becomes a more digital force, things that connect the hardware and, a- and enable the force to sort of understand, decide, and act more quickly are key 
So in some ways, the old value of death problem for hardware and integration of capabilities still exists, but it also has evolved. And I think the solutions have to evolve with it. And um, this gets to the larger point we were talking about a minute ago about how the budget is structured. And I think that, you know, when you talk about solutions to the valley of death, um, the department's programmers and program management managers are really kind of central to any successful solution because they're the ones who got to have this catcher's mitt, right? And they've got to have, um, you know, the flexibility to actually be rewarded for um, not, you know, being expected to like with perfect clarity project the future when they put together their acquisition plans and spend plans, but to actually mm -hmm. be ready to take advantage of and adapt when things change. And so um, I think there's like, I've got like four of many potential solutions to go into, but that's the basics of it. And, um, you know, depending on where we are in time, um, we might want to like save some of those specifics for another time or however you would like to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Um, you know, I, I think just to, just to comment on that and, you know, I, I appreciate that, that dive on, you know, what is the value of death? And, you know, I look at it as like, you know, the struggle is, is real, right? Like it's a waiting game for, for funding and, you know, Bigelow's company of robotics, right? Like I got this awesome widget and, you know, I can't, I can't scale in production or I can't continue to experiment or, you know, increase staffing because I'm waiting on, you know, congressional funding, you know, mother may I, you know, on, on getting, getting funding. And, you know, I can't weather the storm, you know, juxtapose, you know, the, the juggernaut companies out there that are, you know, in the defense industrial base, you know, I'm just, I'm a, I'm a small, small fish in a, in a huge lake, you know, as a defense industrial mm -hmm. base. So, yeah. Um, before, you know, we, we wrap things up, ma'am, and get to the, to the fun questions. Um, you know, I just want to use this as a target of opportunity because I'm always looking out for your articles and yet, you know, you have phenomenal work and you have a recent one that's in the national interest that I'll, that I'll link to the, to the podcast and it's on the national defense authorization act. And I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Cause you know, recently, you know, recently passed right by, by Congress. And I was just wondering, you know, what is in the policy bill that you like and, and what is it falling short on? So, you know, I think there's a number of benefits to having, you know, the defense authorization um, passed and, you know, hopefully the president will sign it here soon um, for, you know, the 63rd congressional consecutive year or something like that. Um, I think that one of the key things that we get out of it is, um, number one, you know, it adheres to the budget caps that are in the FRA for defense, which are too low, but are definitely better than us ending up in a CR. And one of the things I hope happens is that the bipartisan support that was shown in passing the NDAA will carry through to kind of pull the appropriations for defense along as well. And, you know, kind of get that done because, you know, you can't spend an authorization. So, um, you know, I think that the authorization, um, you know, in the past has kind of been a, a precursor to getting that appropriation done. I think the other thing that we see is, uh, you know, a continued focus on China and Taiwan and on space and cyber, on the industrial base, you know, some of the key policy issues that need to be solved. And, you know, there's some um, codification of uh, recent innovation uh, organizations like, you know, Defense Innovation Unit and the Office of Strategic Capital. And so there's some good, some good things in there that, uh, you know, that the, the policy side of the equation in their deep bench of experts kind of does for us. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Um, well, so 
no, I, I, re- I really appreciate you know the deep dive and all these all these questions and going over PPB and in the budget. Um, we'll wrap things up, and I, I can't end this without going over you know asking you my my fun questions. And these are the questions that I ask every guest. And so I'll kick it off with, what is your all time favorite book? So you know, on the book, um, it's hard to pick one, and so um, I picked a couple of movies instead. Okay. And um, so right now, my favorite movies are Secretariat, Seabiscuit, and Hidden Figures. And when I was listing those out, I realized there's a common theme in these movies. Um, It's really about perseverance and resiliency. Um, And they're very positive movies, right? And I, I like that because there's enough negative out there. I like my movies to be, you know, kind of that like goodness that happens. And I also gotta say, I really like Guardians of the Galaxy because <laughs> it's so silly and funny and clever and has great music. So there's there's my answer to that question. Oh, awesome, ma'am. You know, actually, I really appreciate that because uh, every time I ask that question, like my book list just keeps getting longer and longer and longer. And, so uh, I yeah. have not added to that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, ne- next question is, you know, what emerging or futuristic capability technology, you know, worries you the most? So my worry is more about how emerging and future stuff is used and our flexibility, agility, and creativity, or whatever you want to call it, and figuring that out rather than any one technology. I mean, I think it's about application and, you know, sort of the freedom to think about how things are going to work and how they're going to be applied. Because like you said, there's a lot... And there always is. I mean, there's always sort of emerging and future things, but it's how they work together um, that I think both worries me the most and also presents the most opportunity. Interesting. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. I generally get a lot of uh, like AI is the, is the answer. You know, I mean, AI is one of those, right? I mean, it doesn't worry me. I think what it does is offer us an opportunity to use it. Mm-hmm. And, and if we don't do that, that worries me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, final question, ma'am. I was just wondering, you know, if, you know, any advice, any words of wisdom you could, you know, you know give us, you know, for our force management community or our staff officers, just any, any advice, any words of wisdom. Ma'am. So I'm going to pass on a couple of things that um, have kind of stuck with me from the past and then maybe a couple of my own. So first, um, you know, we have very serious jobs to do. I mean, you do and, and the people who will be listening to this do. And I think it's really important to um, take those, um, the mission seriously, but not to take yourself too seriously. And I think, you know, in addition to that, I would say, you know, you want to be responsive and never give up. And finally, I think it's okay to have fun. It makes us more resilient and more creative and more positive, And it helps us with one of the most key things to being successful and that's relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. That, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, you know, I, I, I really, really appreciate your time on, on the podcast and, and, and talking to me through, you know, about PPBE and, and the budget. Um, this has been great. Um, I really, really appreciate it. Um, any final comments, ma'am, before we sign off? No, I mean, I think, you know, thanks for doing this and for, you know, kind of keeping these conversations going between communities that, you know, maybe don't um, know each other as well as they could or, or, or would be beneficial. And, you know, there's so many great topics here to dig further into. I think we got into depth on a couple of them and um, hope it was useful. 
No, absolutely. Yes, yes, ma'am. Very, very much so. Um, and I'm looking to expand it um, into other other areas. So um, thanks again, ma'am. I, you know, I really, really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I just want to say, you know, happy holidays. And, uh, you know, thanks again. I'll look out for your for future articles. Likewise. Thanks a lot. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes and have a great holiday.